the Jericho Network on Westwood One. Welcome to One on One with Miss Lafana. Joining me on this episode, it is Sticks bassist Ricky Phillips. We talk about the band's new DVD live at the Orleans Arena, their upcoming residency with Don Felder out in Vegas called Renegades in the Fast Lane, coming to you in January 2017. And then we look back at Ricky's career, talking about Bad English, Coverdale Page, Ronnie Montrose, and a lot more. Without further ado, here is the one, the only, multi-talented, bassist extraordinaire, Ricky Phillips. We are speaking with bassist Ricky Phillips of the band Styx. Always a pleasure, Ricky. How are you? Thanks, Mitch. Yeah, it's a pleasure for me, too. I'm doing great. We're doing good. Yeah, and now I saw the guys, I saw the band in Malone, New York in August, and you know, you just never fail to deliver a quality show. It's just hit after hit. It's just fun. It's fun. And uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's it, that's important. And I'm glad. Thank you for saying that because we have a lot of uh, people who will hold up the sign that says, you know, this is my 60. It might be maybe my 200th or whatever show. And because um, we have so many diehard fans out there that that see these multiple shows. Um, we try to change it up and go to the deep cuts, use different deep cuts. We try to keep track of what the set list was when we were last in your town. And, uh, so it's different the next time you come and see it. And, um, we also pay great attention to detail on the original recordings so that you're not disappointed and you want to hear this one note that Tommy Shaw hits or something on any this is the way I sing it now, you know, or you, I hate that. We all, we all hate that. So we're, we're trying to really deliver what everyone knows is the sticks catalog, um, right down to arrangements. There are places in, in the set where, you know, we can all kind of deviate and, sh- and show our musicianship. So it's not a, uh, phoned in performance every night or you're not acting the same part. It does change from night to night, but we don't do it at the sake of the song. If that makes sense. Um, we make sure the songs, the guitar solos and the keyboard parts that you've heard all your life, those remain intact. And, and uh, then we have fun in different parts of the show. In, in fact, you know, you mentioned the set list, and, and that's one of my big bugaboos with bands that have been dur- touring for 10, 15, 20 years. They come by, and sometimes you go, well, it's the same 15 songs I saw in 2004 and in 2008. And so, yeah. so it really makes yeah. a difference for you then to you really make sure that, okay, we've done these ones, let's give them something different? Yeah, and you make a good point. There's not much room to move when... So who are you playing for? Are you playing for the people who are coming back to see you again? Are you playing for all the new people that have shown up that night? It's a tough call. So we, we try... That's why we... Um, our, our staff, actually, the, the, the um, stage manager, he makes note of what the set list was, and we keep a file of that. And uh, so when we come back, we try to change it up. But it's tough. Any, any band that's got a lot of hits, everybody wants to hear those those songs first, and then um, deviate from the just the, the I guess the pop palette afterwards. And so it depends also on the length of the show. Sometimes you're only on stage for 70, 75 minutes. Then sometimes you have the luxury of playing two hour sets, and that's when we can we can get a little personal and have a deeper conversation. As Tommy Shaw says, it's like. Um, those are the fun shows, but, um, yeah, you make a really, really good point. It's apologies to those people who are coming back and hearing the same songs, but, uh, you know, you kind of can't 
overlook certain songs. You got to play them. Yeah. No, I see what you mean. The, uh, you know, there's like every every band has those five or ten that if they don't play, you go, what, what do you mean Kiss didn't do rock and roll all night tonight? <laughs> right, right. But there's also, yeah. you know, like Metallica does, there, there's that, that spot in the set where there's, okay, these two songs are going to be floaters and we're going to move them along, through, you know, and that's, that's, that's mm-hmm. a great thing. So let's talk mm-hmm. about what we're here for. First of all, Sticks Live at the Orleans Arena, Las Vegas on DVD, show from a couple of years back. Just talk to me a little bit about that show and, and capturing it on, on film and you know, what fans can expect if they go buy the, uh, the, the DVD. It's funny. Um, just kind of off the cuff here. Uh, whenever we do these big recordings of a show, it seems to, you walk off the stage going, man, why, why did I, why is it tonight? I don't feel like I nailed it. I didn't, I don't really feel like I played my best. And I remember, I remember feeling that way when I came off of, of that stage that night. And so I just kind of, you know, I didn't want everybody out. I didn't know how they felt. And it's kind of, you want to keep the, the spirit up. Then I heard it and I, I went, oh my God, you know, it, that sounds incredible. I really think that that show is probably the best captured sticks uh, set that I've heard in a while. As far as, as far as the band playing tight and, and people doing cool little riffs and, and lines and things, little deviations, um, but as an overall, and Gary Loizzo, God bless him, he passed away in January. He mixed that, and he's been with Sticks since the 70s. Uh, an incredible guy, incredible ears, and just a, one of my best buddies. I'd play golf with him on days off, and I miss him greatly. But he did an amazing job mixing that show. And, um, yeah, it's it's cool. It was a fun night, a great crowd. They were, they were there. to They had their party hats on, man. They were ready to go. And uh, it, it just, it was a win-win all the way around. But it's funny, my, my initial point was that I think musicians are all pretty tough on themselves. And so uh, maybe the, the, the 1% of, that you didn't get really bothers you more than the 99% where you nailed it. I, and I, I think all, there's this sensitive side to musicians that they want perfection. And uh, so you'll obsess on one little tiny thing that no one else notices. Uh, uh, for, you know, for the sake of the rest of the performance, and, and that's where where Twitter and Facebook drives a lot of musicians crazy. Because in the old days, you'd go play <laughs> Arkansas in front of you know whatever five thousand people, and only the people in that room knew it. Now you screw up, and the whole world is like, "Did you see what he did last?" And it's like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you got it. Um. So and, and so, let's talk about the other thing that's coming up. That's real exciting. It's this sort of residency or co-headline with Don Felder out in Vegas, the Sticks and Don Felder Renegades in the Fast Lane. So it's, it's the first couple of weeks of January. What are we going to see there? Are we, again, going back to set list, will there be a lot of variation or will it be a very Las Vegas show and this is what we're doing? What's that going to be like? Yeah, um, we're discussing that because okay. we don't want it to be just another show, right? right. So we're discussing that. And uh, we've had a couple meetings so far. Um, about that, but there's some compliment that I wouldn't have picked. It'd be dead straight. I wouldn't have picked, but it, we've noticed it. There's certain bands you play with, and you find that the, the band it's it's bigger than just seeing one of the band each band on their own. But together, the compliment, but the compliment of this Eagles material, especially that Don was uh, a part of. Don wrote two my two favorite Eagles songs are, of course, Hotel California. 
and victim of love, victim of love. And those are those, that's kind of, he's the rocker, uh, input in, in the writing to, to that band. I, and I was, I'm sure Joe Walsh, who was a big favorite of mine as well, had, had something to do with that. But, uh, Don is a really, whenever other bands come on the bill, when we've done shows, all the guitar players are standing out there at the side of the stage to watch Don play because he's got this thing. It's all his, um, and it's, it's just great. And he's got a killer band. Um, and it's, it's just going to be fun. It's whatever we end up doing with the set list. Um, we'll probably, I think that was one of the things we've discussed is making sure we compare set lists and, um, and, keep and find find the right match, but uh, it's gonna it's a blast. It's a just a good compliment. It's a good night of of hearing songs you've heard before, but uh, hearing them live and played so well. Yeah. Now now let me let me go a little random in the questions here, and let's let's just sure. follow along here. So you mentioned great players, and one of them, of course, was Ronnie Montrose. You you had done some work with him, and you also had done some, I guess, demos or recording with him and Eric Singer. Uh, talk to me about that, and, and just talk to me about Ronnie himself, because he he was such a great, great uh, musician, a guy, just a, an incredible yeah. influence. Um, yeah. Let, let's 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 go with that. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, Ronnie is one of those guys that um, everybody who knew Ronnie would develop a relationship with Ronnie, and you would think you're you're Ronnie's best friend, and and I always thought I was probably Ronnie's best friend. And when he died, and I went and, and uh, Neil Sean, myself, and Steve Smith did the opening of, of the life celebration for Ronnie. Uh, we did some of, of Ronnie's material to open up the show. And as I was talking to everybody, I realized everybody said about Ronnie's best friend. He's like one of these guys, he gives 100% of himself. He always gave everything he had, and um, good, bad, or ugly. He was honest, and uh, he was a crazy, wacky, talented motherfucker man he was just um amazing and uh and a dear dear friend miss him greatly and uh you know it's his guitar playing i think people forget but guitar, other guitar players will tell you that stock rock guitar riff number you know 327 through 500 uh, came from ronnie montrose there's a palette that he presented nobody played those those exact riffs that sort of become part of the arsenal from a lot of players today. And um, he, uh, just, the song Frankenstein, for example, uh, Ronnie told me that 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 was a song that morphed its way. There were bits and pieces. That's why they called it Frankenstein. There were bits and pieces that they took in the Edgar Winter group that either Dan Hartman would come up with or Ronnie would come up with or Edgar would come up with. And it began to build and build and build. And he said, it changed, but it did. It, and when they recorded it, it that didn't stop the changing. It kept changing. They kept adding to it. That was just an ongoing thing. If you went to see the Edgar Winter play that after it had already been recorded, there were little deviations or changes. Uh, not so much in the arrangement, but maybe uh, within the arrangement, there would be little parts that were added uh, to it. And um, uh, Ronnie just had that kind of clever. I, I love the Edgar Winter Group. That was a great place. I don't know if also people know that uh, Ronnie worked with Van Morrison. Um, Ronnie told me another great story when he was working with Van the very first time. He was playing. He was kind of trying to hear his guitar and putzing with his amp and getting proper sounds. And 
he started playing this riff, and Van said, Ronnie, that's it right there. And he said, what's it? That's it. That's the riff for our, for our, our song. He goes, what song? He said, the one we're about to write. And it was Wild Nights. I mean, Ronnie was just kind of playing that riff, and that became a big song for, for, for Van. And that, um, uh, who else? Ronnie worked with so many people um, over his you know, tenure on this planet. And, um, I think, well, you know, when you're it, great, uh, people want to work with you. I mean, that's as simple <clears throat> as it gets, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's kind of it. And he produced people behind the scenes. Um, Tesla, for example, um, he, they, well, he's a Northern California guy. He ended, he ended up in Northern California. That's really where he had most of his success. So there's this little band called Tesla and, and he does not a little band. They're a great freaking band. He, great well, I mean, band. at the time. Yeah. Know, right, he, right, 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 right. He went in and he picked up, I wish I could think of the name of the song and little Google search we could find it, but he found a cover for them, which became their first hit. Oh, Little and, Susie, um, which was a, yes, a song by little PhD. <clears throat> uh, the, the band PhD did that and then they covered it. And a lot of people don't know that it's a, it's a cover. So Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, uh, but Ronnie was clever like that. He had just great ideas, man. Just great ideas that would seem to come just out of thin air. At the, on, at the moment, on the fly. And uh, it was a blast playing with him, a blast hanging with him. He's just a great guy. Yeah. Now, 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 I know I don't have an hour with you, so I'm going to just randomly go here again. Uh, I was speaking to one of your former bandmates uh, this week via email. We were talking, and I said I was going to interview you. And first of all, he said, give him my best buddy. And then he said, Ricky will always be one of my favorite bassists. He taught me how to play the big pocket. And that comes from Dean mm. Castronovo in... Uh, bad English that you were oh, with him, um, so that was nice of him to to say that. But um, yeah, 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 yeah. First Very of nice. all, just just talk to me about the big pocket and 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 what that meant, and and how did you convey that to our dear friend Dean? Well, in Dean's case, there's nothing he can't do. He he can do anything, um, technically, but. He's a very if people people who don't know Dean he's like a poodle man he's like you can't he's just on ten all the time and so I kind of grew up on <clears throat> British rock starting with the Beatles but get going to like Cream um, and uh, I have to throw Jimi Hendrix in there who's not British but um, uh, Zeppelin uh, uh, Humble Pie uh, Free um, there's, there's a lot of the, the backbeat is, is the most important thing to, uh, English musicians of that time anyway. And when I figured that out and how to do that, when I joined the babies, that was, you know, a British band that came over and Jonathan came and I joined that band, um, in 78 and I got, I got my master class in, in backbeat when I joined that band, I'd already been into it. And then got to understand it just by playing with Tony Brock. It was a way to make a song bigger than it really is just by playing that fractional second behind the kick drum instead of ahead of it. It makes it five times as fat. And that's what I try to, try to teach Dean. It's okay to, to, to be aggressive and, and be excited when you're playing. But as you're doing that, with that excitement, lay that kick drum on the backside, lay the snare drum even on the backside just a fractionally, and it will make the groove twice as wide, five times as wide, whatever um, the case, depending on the tempo of the song. And 
um, I, that's that's what Dean, all Dean needed to learn was that, and all of a sudden, boom, he sounded amazing. And that's what, with John Wade singing, that's what he needs to have. He does not like edgy, push-forward drumming or uh, any any uh, instrumentation forcing him kind of to sing out of the group. He's 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 a blues singer, man. He's a, he's a British rock singer. And on the back side is where that kind of uh, presentation lives. Yeah, so, so, so let's talk about the band, though, Bad English. I mean, that first yeah. album that came out in 89, massive. You know, When I See You yeah. Smile, massive. Um, talk to me about, first of all, how you got into the band. Why did they pick you? Because in a sense, you know, it was a super group, and your name was Fresh on the Scene. And then what happened after Backlash? Why why couldn't the momentum keep going? Well, we'd all been friends for, you know, gosh, 10 years at that point, I guess. Um, Bad English or, uh, was really um, half the babies and half uh, journey. journey. So what, what ended up happening was um, Jonathan and John and I, uh, actually, I'll tell you, I'll tell you from the very beginning, John, Jonathan came, we were both at his brother's wedding, Muggsy. And after Muggsy's wedding, we all went to this winery, and Jonathan pulled me aside, and he said, look, we're going to let it be known to the press that Journey is no more this next week, and I want to be ready with something, and I want to kind of put a rough-and-tumble rock and roll band together like we had in the Bays. Are you in? And it sounded good to me, and, uh, and Jonathan and I loved working together. <clears throat> and I, uh, he was producing Michael Bolton's Dock of the Bay album. And uh, so he had to go off and do some stuff in New York. Um, and I was supposed to be kind of just making phone calls, looking, going and listening to guitar players and singers. And there was a couple of guys who were really strong on at the time. And he called me from New York and said, you're not going to believe this, but I had dinner with Bingo last night. <clears throat> and I think we should all three get together. Bingo was our nickname for John Lee. And he said, let's go to my studio in San Francisco. Let's, Let's write and see if we still have the magic. And that's what we did. And within two days, we had the beginnings of what we knew was a very strong record. Um, John had already had interest at Epic, and Epic just jumped on board with that and basically signed us. But Neil had been coming over, Neil Sean had been coming over and, and putting down some solos for us. Yeah, but it was his first chance to, to do his own thing. He'd been in Journey for a long time in, in Santana before that. So... This was his first taste of freedom, and he really didn't want to commit to a band. And right when we were going to sign another guitar player, um, all of a sudden Neil burst in the door in rehearsal one day and let his presence be known. And and uh, we knew he was the magic fit anyway. And uh, there you go. And then we started auditioning drummers. And when Dean came in, Neil actually pulled me aside and said, I know this drummer. He's from uh, Oregon. And right. They were in Hardline Oregon. together. Yeah. Well, no, Hardline was after Bad English. So oh, that's right. It was 92. That's right. That's Dean, right. Dean had Sorry. been in a band called uh, Wild Dogs. Yes, yes, yes. And yes. it was a very progressive three-piece with him being a lead singer. And everybody knows what an insane singer Dean is, as well as his drummer. He's a beautiful voice. But we didn't know that in Bad English. That we had no idea. We were just trying to get a drummer, find a drummer. And he came in. And he was a little edgy. He was a little on top of the beat. And we sent him home. And we auditioned another 20 drummers from around the country. And then Neil and I went to John Wade and said, look, let's get that kid back from Oregon. He's got the shit. Let's, let's just, I said, let me, give me like 
20 minutes with him. He's got, he's got so much talent. Let me just, and so John said, okay, let's do it. So we brought him down, worked with him for, I mean, we just said, okay, just lay it on the backside. Keep it deep and big, brother. And, and he did that. And, uh, that's, that English was born, man. It was, uh, that was the beginning of all, all, all of us, uh, who have always been the original members of that band. Yeah, and, and you know we're looking. Uh, what is it now? Uh, twenty six years later, I guess, or twenty seven oh, years God. later. Not amazing. Yeah, you know, and and with everybody still out there and still doing it, it you know, it it wouldn't hurt maybe, or from a fan's perspective, to see a few shows, or or even just go do like ten shows and 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 you know say goodbye properly or whatever you want you know, want to call it. It's just it, it's a yeah. shame that that you just don't do something well, again, you know. <laughs> You know, I mean, I, I I think it would be too. I'll, I'll, I'll go along. I'll go as far as to agree with you. Um, it was an amazing, uh, an amazing band. Things that ha- happened quickly and easily for, for that band. We wrote songs quickly. Uh, we got songs recorded quickly. It was it was just easy to do. It was a great great combination of guys um, yeah. doing something that. We're trying to do a little something different. It became a little bit 80s-y because you had to get airplay at that particular time specifically in the late 80s to early 90s. If you want to get on radio, man, there's a little, uh, I don't know, mold you had to fit. And, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but uh, we tried to do, there are some songs that we didn't put on the record that, man, they were so progressive and cool. Yeah. But the uh, possibilities of what you could do in 2017 without those constraints, without AOR, without the guy, absolutely, yeah. it, it would be yeah. killer. Um, I know yeah. we had 20 minutes, which is why I'm sort of rushing it here, but I would be remiss if we didn't mention Coverdale Page. Um, mm. What was that like for you? Because first of all, it's Jimmy Page. And you know, second right. of all, it's Jimmy Page, right? So, <laughs> and third of all, it's Jimmy Page, right? Yeah, exactly. So I know, he, I know, and I love David, and and it was really David. Um, who oh, and David's great. Let's, let's not contacted yeah. me and and uh, and wanted to know if I would. Uh, well, the way he presented it to me, I was never really supposed to be the bass player. Um, I came along to help them play bass and help construct songs uh, that they were writing for the project, and he wanted a guy who had, you know, production chops and, you know, whatever, the chops I, that he felt I had to come in um, and, and help in that process. I said, absolutely. And um, not, I've always wanted to work with Danny Carmassi. had been a year's friend of mine for years. And speaking of Montrose, the drummer for Montrose, um, just an amazing drummer. And when they told me he was involved, I, I was even more excited. But the very first day when I think uh, Danny and I were just, having soba noodles uh, in uh, Reno somewhere. And, and we realized in about, uh, I don't know, half an hour, we were going to go in and meet Jimmy Page for the first time. And uh, we thought, oh my gosh, this is, this, this. we kind of both pushed our soba noodles away. For, <laughs> I couldn't eat anymore. And we uh, ended up being driven over uh, to uh, a place where we were was set up for us to start working and Jimmy came in the room. None of, neither one of us knew what to expect. And with a big smile on Jimmy's face, he just had his hand extended forward, just came straight over to us and said, I'm so happy you guys said yes. Sir. Thanks for being here and helping us out, blah, blah, blah. As we worked on the music for about five months, um, we really developed this thing that was pretty special. Um, and I wish we would have actually recorded that record more, more, a little bit looser, more of Zeppelin style, 
it became sort of a big production, and and and, it, and it's a great record. Sounds, but sounds but again, good. that's radio but, and AOR, and you have to have a single, and it has to be polished. And there you go, there you go, you said it. So, and that's what ended up happening. But I loved. Uh, there are some uh, of us rehearsing. We at one point moved into this huge room, kind of like a small arena, little place. It was basically this, the second floor of an office building that was just all open, and. Um, we we would play those songs and it was recorded as we were listening to see if arrangements were working and gosh man it's freaking oodles of magic in all in those recordings and um it was just a great time jimmy i got to ask jimmy a zillion questions as a kid i always wanted to know about you know clapton and and, and beck and, and jimmy being all coming from the same band and how did that happen and who was who was there with who and and uh what was going on and we Jimmy and I were the only ones that really went out at night. We liked to go out and have a couple beverages and look at pretty girls, and uh, we'd go to clubs. And, and on the way there, uh, Beverly Bush, this uh, boxer, English boxer, who was Jimmy's valet really at that time, uh, would drive us, and I would ask him all these crazy questions I'd always wanted to know. And we just had a blast. It was a good hang, good hardworking, good time, and uh, yeah, it was fun. That, that, enjoyed it. that was great. Now, now I know we've run out of time, but I'll, I'll just finish on this. You, sure. you know, uh, Dean Castronovo said that he learned the big pocket from you. So, so what do you learn, if anything, from both David Coverdale and Jimmy Page? Because, you know, White Snake and Deep Purple and and um, Led Zeppelin, huge, mm-hmm. massive influences. Those two guys yeah. must have brought something where you just—I mean, you probably don't just plug in and play. You must study them and say, "Okay, look, look how he's moving his fingers." Right? What yeah. did you learn from those guys? You know, Mitch, I think it solidified more than I think I'd already learned because I, you know, with a fine-tooth comb gone over both those guys' catalog and gleaned everything I could. It already become part of my DNA as a player. Zeppelin was huge in my DNA, huge in my DNA. The arrangements, the the things that are just wait a minute—that's not the Beatles songs are, you know, A part to B part to C part back to B part and, and going out on a chord, you know, and it's like this. There were no rules, and every rule that there might have been had been broken in, in the Zeppelin stuff, and I loved that. And I and Jimmy solidified that. There was one song I was doing a lot of of uh, the technical part of when we were putting some of that stuff together, um, and I remember tr- tr- creating a tempo track to one piece of music on that record. I'm forgetting the title of it right now. But I think it had, it changed tempos four different times during the song. Now, you never do, did that. And from where I was taught, you you had a click track and you stayed and you did not deviate from that click track. <laughs> you stayed there. But Jimmy, in his genius, man, he knows, no, this 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 isn't the tempo that this part this part needs to breathe. we got to slow this down and then, bam, kick back in and bring the numbers up about three on this next section, and I was absolutely blown away how right he was. Um, it just and you don't you don't feel that as being wrong when you listen to the track. It's it's just so amazing how he would think. He did not think like any other musician that I'd ever worked with. Um, and things that were important to him were how it felt, how it sounded, tones, um, things the way tones went together with with one another things that are so much a part, I didn't realize that drives me crazy, but I must have gotten that from the Sunday Zeppelin records. It drives me crazy when tones don't match and, and things like that. But you know, that's what and was David, great I about... Say, I've kind of left David out. David, yeah. by the way, is... I had no idea how gifted David is as a songwriter and as 
as little things detail like that. I think something about the British thing, they they get some stuff that I think a lot of American musicians kind of overlook, and it comes out in, a, in, a, in an overall sound, not just the feel, but the, the tones and the sounds of, of, of the separate instruments too. Yeah, and, and, and I was just going to say, that that's what was great about the 70s, whether it was Kiss or whether it was, uh, you know, Deep Purple. They put on the record what sounded right, not what was technically right or what you would find in a musician's book or whatever. Now we yeah. seem to spend so much time fixing that, you know, pro-tooling <laughs> this, and pro- yeah. that we've just taken out sort of the soul. Yeah, squeeze out all the love. Squeeze yeah. all the love out of it, man. Yeah, yeah I know. Wh- which is a shame. And, uh, uh, of course, um, new sticks music, yes or no? Because I know we're, we're way, way over time here. I will say I hope so. And, um, I, and and one thing I will say is, is people ask me this all the time. We're always writing. Um, that's what we do, man. It's just because uh, it's not really uh, a lucrative business anymore. It doesn't mean we still don't write. It still doesn't mean we still don't uh, produce and, and, and record record stuff. But what we're going to have to do one of these days, and I know we're already booked into next year, but um, we've got to pull the bus over. And and we haven't had that dialogue within the band. I'm, uh, I just know uh, that we've got to pull the bus over in order for us. And, and one of the things, and maybe I've even said this to you before, but I've, we have a crew that we do not want to lose. And as soon as we do leave the road, we we take the chance of losing some of some guys that are, they've got to feed their families and uh, two other bands. Cause we've got a cracker jack crew and there's other bands just salivating, waiting for us to take a break so they can steal our guys. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm partly kidding, but I mean, it's, it's, it's the no, truth. But that's how it works. It. They, they have to yeah. commit to a tour. And, you know, I know one band right now, the, the crew guys have to commit through October, 2017. And, and that's just the way it is. So if, if it's one of the guys yeah. on the sticks thing, and then he has to go to the other tour, you now lose him for the next eleven months, and yeah, it's just yeah. the way it is. And, you know? and, but we we still still I don't want to take away from your question. I mean, we do. I I do really hope we get in and really really do pull the bus over and long enough to to spit something out because it'll be it'll be good, and we won't spit anything out. It'll it'll be it'll, it'll be good. Be, it'll be done right. Well, of course, right. you've got Tommy Shaw and Lawrence Gowan, and I mean, you know, how can you go wrong? There you go. But for me, Absolutely. I need you to spit out a new Sticks album, a new Bad English album, and a new Coverdale Page album. So you're going to be very, very busy in the next. Okay, <laughs> I love it. I, I love go. the challenge of that. All right, thanks, Mitch. I Thank you. Have a good one. You too. Cheers. Bye bye. There you have it, folks. My interview with Ricky Phillips of the band Sticks. Great, great stories about Coverdale Page, Bad English, and more. Please do me a favor. Check me out on Twitter, at Mitch Lafon, M-I-T-C-H-L-A-F-O-N, one-on-one Mitch Lafon on Facebook, and PayPal.me, Mitch Lafon, if you care to support the podcast. And with that, bye for now. Oh, my.